And if you have a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Verses 14 through 21. And as you're turning there, about a month ago, I was uh, meandering about in uh, home goods, uh, frantically looking for a gift for my wife. Uh, when I stumbled into uh, what felt like the uh, Joanna Gaines aisle. Uh, there was shiplap, off-whites, bold accents, and inspirational signs hanging everywhere. But on the floor near the end of the aisle, there was one of those inspirational signs laying face down on the ground. And it was not in good shape. It had clearly fallen from a great heights, been kicked and scuffed and marred and scratched beyond recognition. And because of my curiosity and love of irony, I had to see what it said. And as I flipped it over amidst the cracks and the scratches and the scuffs, it read this, a family that prays together stays together. Well, as a church family, we find ourselves in a season of prayer as we together seek the Lord's wisdom and his guidance for the future of our church. And during this season of prayer, we've been preaching through a series on, well, prayer. And so far, we've looked at Paul's prayer in Ephesians 6, the Lord's prayer in Matthew 6. We've looked at prayer and fasting humble and persistent prayer, and this morning we come to corporate prayer. And what I mean by that is simply our life together as a church in prayer. Those times where we come together and pray, whether that's during the worship service, in a small group setting, at a prayer meeting, or over a meal or a cup of coffee with a dear brother or sister in Christ. It's those times where we together come before our God and pray. Because yes, as we've seen in this series, we each need to have our own personal, private prayer lives. But we also need to be praying together. In Acts 2, the disciples devoted themselves to the word, to prayer, and to one another which tells us that part and parcel of our life together is praying together. Because because by God's grace, we're a family, a covenant family, an eternal family, an everlasting family, which is good news. Because life in this broken world isn't easy for anyone. We all have our burdens. We all carry with us sorrows, disappointments, loss, brokenness, and frustrations. So the truth of the matter is, we all need each other. In part because life is so frustratingly fragile. A mere phone call, a text message, or a conversation can change life as we know it in an instant. But in the church, here within the community of faith, 
is somewhere, somewhere amidst all of the difficulties and the uncertainties of life that we can walk with one another. We can rejoice with one another. We can grieve, weep, and lament with one another. And we can endeavor, by God's grace, to hold on to hope and to learn to trust Him more and more and more through the ordinary and the extraordinary moments of life. And we can do it together. Life together is a beautiful thing. But like that sign in Home Goods, life together can also get a bit messy. Because we're a messy people. Like trying to give a hug to a porcupine. We can all be a bit more prickly than we often realize. That like sheep, we can sometimes use our teeth to bite rather than to eat. Yet God in his amazing grace has given us something in prayer that can unite our hearts. That can bust down the dividing walls that so quickly spring up between us. And bring those who are far apart together as a covenant family. So because of God's grace towards us, we can extend grace towards one another. Because his grace and his love covers a multitude of sins, failures, oddities, and even our flaws. So this morning we're going to look at Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. A prayer for spiritual power. But power to do what? Well, according to the text, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. But why do we need to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? And what I hope to demonstrate to you this morning is how the context of our passage reveals that we need to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge in order that we might love one another well and live life together. Because God's love and his grace towards us changes everything. That the love and the grace of our vertical relationship with the Lord spills out and fills up and covers over so much of the messiness and the brokenness of our horizontal relationships with one another. And there's so much that could be said about this passage But this morning, I want us to examine how through this prayer, Paul teaches us and demonstrates for us how prayer can move us forward together in God's grace and love, despite the messiness of our life together. So from our passage, I want us to see three things. A unifying posture, a unifying prayer, and our unifying God. So here now, the reading of God's word from Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth 
and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thus far, God's word for us this morning. Our first point is a unifying posture. As Paul prays corporately for the church in Ephesus, I want us to pay careful attention to his approach and to examine what his posture might be telling us about life together in prayer. Now, to understand his approach, we need to understand the context. Notice quickly how Paul begins this prayer by saying, for this reason. But what's the reason? And to answer that question, we need to look a little further back to Ephesians 2, verse 22, which says, In him, in Christ, you are also being built together into a dwelling place from God, for God by the Spirit. Paul's point being that the good news that unites us to Christ also unites us by the Spirit one to another. That we are, by God's grace, being built together. Therefore, how we do life together matters. How we work through our differences matters. How we deal with conflict matters because it has gospel ramifications. And I would say particularly in a world and in a culture as balkanized and as divided as ours, a culture where forgiveness is a merit earned, not a gift received, how we work through and overcome our differences, our difficulties, our failures, our varying tensions, and even our shortcomings matters. Because of God's love for us and how it has fundamentally transformed how we are to love and walk with one another. Which is a key point in understanding the entirety of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Because all was not well in Ephesus. There was much conflict, strife, dismissiveness, annoyance, and disagreement that was running rampant amongst the church particularly between Jews and Gentiles. Which explains why Paul gives them a charge right after he concludes this prayer, a charge that says, Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. You see, Paul is calling And urging them to strive, to fight, and to contend for the unity and peace with one another. Rather than spending so much of their time and energy fighting and competing with each other. Therefore, the context of this incredible prayer. This incredible prayer for spiritual strength and power is set within the struggles and the mess of life together in the covenant community of faith. You see, the Ephesians are struggling to one another well. They're struggling to love and to live life together. 
and in hearing of their relational dysfunction and issues, Paul prays that God might fill and fuel them with the strength and the deep well of his relational capital and his unifying grace of his deep and boundless love for them. So that being boundlessly loved by God, they might grow in their love for one another. Yet there's something strange and striking about Paul's posture in this prayer. Have a look down at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Throughout his letters, Paul prays a number of times. But here's the only one where he drops to his knees. But why? Why is he seeking, what is he seeking to convey to them? A sense of urgency, yes, but also a sense of deep humility. And if we look throughout the scriptures, when one drops to their knees in prayer, urgency with humility is exactly what that posture is demonstrating. We see it with Solomon as he drops to his knees in prayer at the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. We see it in Daniel chapter 6 when despite the king's command and under the threat of death, Daniel opens up his window and drops to his knees in prayer to the one true God. And we see the same thing in Jesus. When in the garden of Gethsemane, when he falls to the ground and prays to his father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. But if not, not my will be done, but yours. In all of these cases, they fall to their knees with urgency and humility because of the weight and the significance of the moment that was before them. So what's Paul staring down the barrel at? A threat to the peace and the unity of the church, which in Paul's mind is apparently a really big deal. But why? Brothers and sisters, Jesus came to unite us to himself. And by uniting us to himself, to unite us one to another. So again, our life together matters. That how we work through and work out our differences, whether they are menial or meaningful, matters. Because our Savior has commanded us to love one another as we have been loved by him. That according to Jesus in John 13, our love for one another would be the single greatest evangelistic tool. That through it, that the world might know that we are his disciples. Division, dissension, discord, dismissiveness, and relational brokenness then aren't small potatoes in the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you drill down to the very heart of the issue in Ephesus, it's not a relational or ethnic or racial misunderstanding or difference. But at the heart of their discord was a gospel misunderstanding. Which amazes me. Because the book of Acts tells us that Paul spent years in Ephesus. That they would have heard him preach and proclaim the gospel countless times. Yet years later, Paul finds himself in prison writing this letter to the Ephesians. And what Paul spends the first three chapters of this letter doing is reminding them yet again of the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, in their hatred, 
in their annoyance, in their frustration with one another, and in their inability to reconcile or to forgive. They're missing the gospel. So having directed them to the gospel with his words, Paul now drops to his knees and prays in humble reliance upon the Lord. A humility that drives him to look up and to pray and to hope in God, not himself, not his influence or his rhetorical flair. I mean, here's a world-renowned church planter and mission strategist. And rather than leaning upon his own vast experience in navigating the interpersonal dynamics of church folk, Paul leans not upon his own understanding or even upon his own influence within that community, but looks to his Father in heaven. That he approaches the Ephesians not with the thunderclap of his apostleship, nor with the whip of his influence and significance in that community, but comes humbly before them. He comes before them on his knees in prayer. Because while pride always builds up walls, Humility has a beautiful way of tearing them down. So then, is the peace and the unity of the church a matter of great urgency for us? Is it something worth fighting and striving for? And if so, are we humbly approaching the Lord by ourselves, but also with one another? Are there differences and disagreements in our midst? And if so... Are we as diligent in praying through those things together as we are at discussing them together? Both are certainly necessary. But are we urgently and humbly seeking the Lord in prayer, not just alone and in private, but with one another, even with those with whom we are in disagreement? Because one of the amazing gifts of corporate prayer is that in it, we are together humbly looking up to our God to behold Him who unites us rather than focusing on that which divides. This brings us to our second point, a unifying prayer. As we said, Paul is praying for the spiritual strength and power of God's people. That God in his grace and mercy would give us the strength and the power to know, to experience, and to realize just how much God loves us. Now I've read through this passage. I've taught through this passage. I've preached through this passage. But there's an underlying theme at work here that I've always overlooked in reading and studying this prayer. A theme we see in at least three places in our passage. It's the theme of unity. The first mention of it is in verse 15. Have a look down, starting in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Structurally and rhetorically, verse 15 isn't necessary. Paul could have easily just jumped from verse 14 to verse 16. Yet the point that Paul is trying to prayerfully get across to the Ephesians and to us is that whether they be Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, free or slave, married or single, male or female, Democrat or Republican, mask or no mask, that if they were to take a DNA swab of their souls, what the spiritual DNA would reveal is that in Christ, God is our Heavenly Father. 
That in Christ we are all from the same family. That no matter our race or class or whatever or however else, our world seeks to divide and disrupt us. That the God who made all things, and as verse 15 says, the God who named all things is our Father in heaven who brings us together as his children. The second mention of unity is found in verse 18. Have a look down, starting in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Did you hear it? That in the midst of this glorious and abounding prayer for God's love to be rooted and grounded in our hearts... Paul includes, yet again, a phrase that's not structurally nor rhetorically necessary if the unity of God's people isn't on the forefront of his mind, but it is. This phrase, together with all the saints, this passage works perfectly fine without it. Yet Paul's point is this, that as Christ dwells in our hearts by faith, that we are rooted and grounded in his love, a love which is something that we get to enjoy together. That as his saints, as his people, redeemed by his grace, love, and mercy, a love that our God showers upon each, upon each of us, each and every day, a love that fills us up. So that from out of the overflow of God's love for us, we can be poured out and filled up in our love for one another. And friends, this is one of the great joys of coming together in worship, but also in times of prayer. It's one of the great joys in being one of your pastors because I know your, your stories. I know your struggles your hardships, and your losses. I know what it costs for some of you to limp through those doors this morning. But I also know your joy. And I get to see it as we together lift up our voices and our hearts to our God in worship. And as you pour out your heart to your Father in heaven and in times in prayer, you see, in seeing and experiencing God's love for you, I'm reminded and encouraged that that same God loves me as well. Therefore, as we come together, we are mutually encouraged by one another because of God's love for us. Third mention of unity in this prayer is found in Paul's benediction in verses 20 and 21. Have a look down. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations forever and ever. Amen. Structurally, Paul blends what would have been a well-known Jewish blessing, now to him who is able. But within this blessing, he also includes a Greek word that would have been rhetorically significant, the word for power or dynamos. So again, we see Paul straddling the ethnic and the racial differences at work within this church in Ephesus, but striving to show them that, how, that in Jesus, 
He is the one who can bring them together. He is the one who can unite his people, whether they be Jew or Gentile. And it is that unity, it is that togetherness that brings glory in the church. Again, if, Paul, if unity is not in Paul's view here, he doesn't need to include to him be glory in the church. But he does. And not only does Paul showcase the unity of the church present, but also the unity of the church past and future. When he says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and, and ever. Amen. So how do we apply this? Particularly, how does this impact our life together in prayer? Well, true and genuine prayer forces us to look up. It forces us to together depend not upon ourselves, but upon our Lord. And as we look up, what do we discover? Well, that leads us to discover our third point, our unifying God. Paul's prayer here reminds us who unites us, who brings us together, who tears down the walls that divide us, who in his grace loves to unite sinners like us to himself. For though we walk, well, though, though we were created to walk with him in the cool of the day and in the joy of the garden, we rejected life with him. We sinned. We rebelled against him. That despite knowing the goodness, the glory, and the holiness of God, we chose to go our own way. And in our sin, we were separated from him. But we have a God who is rich in mercy. And in grace, and he sent to us his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we could not, to die the death that we should have, so that in his resurrection from the grave that we too might have victory over sin and over death, that we might once again and forevermore be with the Lord. You see, brothers and sisters, at the heart of the gospel is a glorious unity that we who were once far off have now been brought near to God, that because of Jesus, we can forever be with the Lord, that nothing and no one can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And it is from that vertical unity with the Lord that we can now enjoy horizontal unity, one for us in Christ. That we who have been forgiven of so very much by our Father, we in turn can forgive and work through so very much with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And one of the amazing things about this prayer is that in it, Paul includes every member of the Godhead He reminds us that the Trinity, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are working together to bring us together. To tear down the walls and the lean-tos that our pride and sin so easily put up. In this prayer, Paul reminds us of our union with Christ. That the glories of heaven are ours in him. 
that not only do we have union with him, but we also can enjoy communion with him. That we can experience the realities of our union with Christ in our everyday walk with him as he dwells in our hearts by faith. Paul reminds us that God is our loving heavenly father. And as such, he's made us family. That deeper than our physical DNA is our spiritual DNA in Christ. And lastly, Paul reminds us in this prayer that God's spirit is at work in strengthening our inner being. That as Romans 8 reminds us that his spirit is preaching and proclaiming to our spirit that we are truly sons and daughters of God. That we have a God who loves us with an animating love. Growing up, one of my favorite Christmas movies was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And there's this scene where the apple of Rudolph's eye, Clarice, whispers to him that she thinks he's cute. And in his joy and in his exhilaration, he starts to fly. Well, friends, far greater than being cute, in the gospel we are loved and we are accepted. And we have been brought near to the Father. And what the Spirit does is give us the strength so that deep down in our guts, in the core of who we are, that we will believe, know, understand, and experience the boundless love of God. So that when the successes of life come, we are loved. When the failures of life mount, we are loved. When, we, when the doctor's face suddenly gets serious, we are loved. When the mist of depression or pain won't leave, his love abides. When the trap door of life springs open, and life as we know it changes in an instant, his love endures and remains the same. A love so amazing, so divine, that it has the power to move and motivate us to things that we never thought possible apart from him. To conclude, two takeaways for our life together in prayer. The first is that our posture matters. Life together is messy. Sometimes we are far more lovable than we think we are. And at others, far less lovable than we think we are. But either way, pride comes and divides with such ease. And its repairs always prove costly and time-consuming. And lost time is never found. So as we do life together, as we step on each other's toes, as life together gets messy and we have differing opinions and thoughts and ideas or what have you, are we approaching our Lord and even one another with a posture of humility? That yes, we are bold and courageous in speaking the truth in love. But is our posture towards each other one of humility and grace? Seeking and striving step by step for the peace and the purity and the unity of the church. Who is in, Jesus, who is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The second takeaway is seeing the fundamental importance of looking up together even and especially when we disagree. 
It is truly an amazing thing how God unites his people as they look to him in faith and in prayer. But as that cheesy and broken sign in home goods reminded me, that a family that prays together stays together. My prayer for us as a church family is that as we move forward, that together in his love and his grace, that we may together behold and look to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask for or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. If you would pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. That your word is true. That we do have a God who loves us. And that love and that grace and that mercy has changed everything. So, Father, by your love, would you change us? Would you transform us? Would you make us more and more like Jesus, I pray? All in Jesus' name. Amen.